0: Matthew 5:38 to 48. Jesus is speaking, he says, "You have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, Go with them two miles, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. For you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are, you going to, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's an old Irish proverb that says, may those that love you... Let me just start over again. May those that love us, love us. And those that don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so we'll know them by their limping. There's another saying that I like about as well that says, before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away from them and you have their shoes. These are both cute, funny sayings, but you know, the fact is, is we kind of want to know who's against us, and we kind of want to know what to do about it, and Jesus has the answer for us today. And uh, as we get ready to go into this series, uh, continue with this series on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that we've got to remember first is this, this fundamental learning that's already pretty evident. We, Jesus always says, you have heard, but I say. And then the other thing that he does is he basically explains how the law is based on the condition of our heart. It's all about explaining to us the way we're supposed to be in our heart. And by that, he means the condition of our soul and the real character of a Christian is what he's talking about. And so Jesus is taking the law and saying and i want to really emphasize this because we cannot forget he said i will not change the law i didn't come here to do that what i did was came to prove the law or to fulfill the law and so this jesus manifesto that he's preaching in the sermon on the mount is meant for us to be the right understanding of the law not an undoing of the law not a changing of the law but simply the correct understanding of the law so when jesus says that certain things are wrong they are but he asks us to interpret them through a different way to to have our hearts right with god then we are right with each other and that's the idea that's what righteousness really means and yet jesus uses hyperbole quite a bit you know those exaggerated phrases that that are meant to get your attention and make you think And so it's very important that we recognize the use of hyperbole in Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, because he says things that at first sound pretty ridiculous to you. And you should remember that, like most good public speakers, and he was the best, he's using the art of combining literal truth and hyperbole, or exaggeration, in order to get you to think and get you to, to, to experience what you're hearing in a new way. And uh, so before we move forward with these uh, sayings from today's reading, let's just kind of review some of the things Jesus has already told us and see if you recognize where he's being literal and where he's using hyperbole. For example, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If he means that literally, then I'd like to know why there aren't more one-eyed Christians out there. If that's literally true, then it seems like all of that great art from the Renaissance and things like that, where Christians are being depicted, they would all have an eye gouged out, you know. And so we don't have any trouble recognizing that in this particular case, Jesus means for us to take it as more a uh, hyperbole than as a literal saying what he's really trying to get you to understand is is that you've got to change the conditions if it were you and me it might be more like this if the refrigerator uh the proximity of the refrigerator causes you to eat too much at night then move away from the refrigerator i mean jesus would put it that way i think and, and so, you know, literally putting the TV at one end of the room and the refrigerator at the other end of the room would be the same kind of thing as saying, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's really just saying, don't go there. Jesus is really very practical in the Sermon on the Mount. And most of what he says is meant to be understood in this very practical light. He, he's really just saying... God the creator had a plan for your life. He had a plan for the way human existence would play out. And sin interrupted that plan and corrupted that plan and caused us to do things more for our own sake and for pride's sake than for the reality of God's perfect arrangement. And in that way, Jesus is trying to correct our thinking so that we will not just be obedient and faithful followers of this disciples law, but actually have a better life. I mean, some of the things that we do in the name of religion are so much about trying to uh, meet certain expectations that we have assigned to the sayings of the Bible rather than understanding that the real need that is being met through scripture is the transformation of our nature. That the real purpose of reading the Bible and in particular listening to the words of Jesus is that we might have our human nature restored to what God intends for it to be. And Jesus gives you very literal instruction on how to do that. So let's take today's reading and tear into it and we'll see what what this is about in this case if Jesus says to the, to the people, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and I say, uh, love your enemies. And so what, what he's talking about is the way the law was originally presented in Leviticus, and Exodus, and Deuteronomy, is that, that uh, if someone sinned against another person, if they committed some sort of offense against another person, that the response should be appropriate. So, even today, people still kind of live by this eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing, but let's be honest and really let's be honest. If somebody knocks out your eye, most people are going to knock out both of their eyes. (laughs) You know, if if Dottie'd had the chance, Snooky'd have two broken arms, you know. (laughs) See, But what I'm really getting at here is is this whole tooth-for-tooth thing, for example. Jesus is saying, you've heard that said. Well, what it means is is that if somebody knocks out your tooth, then all they owe you is a tooth. But what do people really do? What do they really do? Somebody busts you in the mouth and knocks out your tooth, there's a pretty good chance, guys, that you're going to bust them until they're laying on the ground bloodied and bleeding and sad and broken and you know let's watch the movies and see how that is what's the manly thing to do right what's the manly thing to do somebody commits an offense against you you make them pay dearly for it don't you that's the point that Jesus is trying to make is the law was intended that there would be justice there would be a righteous response if someone harms you then the appropriate response is to expect nothing more from them than some sort of recompense, some sort of uh, equal response. And so the law saying eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, it is not meant, again, literally that if someone accidentally knocks your tooth out, I mean, you know, when we were moving that furniture the other night. There's probably was incidents where we were helping each other and hurting each other at the same time. You know, here, Fred, you pick up that and I'll pick up this and whoops. Oh, you just smashed my finger. Well, if you stop and go smash the other guy's finger, <laughs> I think that's kind of silly and you're laughing because you agree with me. But this is literally what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, just don't go there. Just don't go there. And so what he wants people to understand is is that God expects us to be just. And the law makes room for justice. And the law makes room for that by saying, you know, if someone does something wrong, then the the, the proper response is something of equal justice. And so to put it another way, what Jesus is emphasizing is the law was meant for us to not be vindictive, to not to demand retribution. You know, if you get right down to it, and we're gonna get into this more in a few minutes, but if you get right down to it, when someone injures you, your first reaction is to want to make them punish or or punish them or make them pay for what's happened. Here's something we can all relate to. You know, uh, given Jasper's excellent traffic, your odds of having a fender bender are pretty good around here, right? And, and if somebody makes a stupid, make, they just make a dumb error, they're texting, right? And they make an error, and they run into your car and damage your car. Be honest. What's your first reaction going to be? What are you going to do if it wasn't your fault, but you just got thumped by another vehicle? All right? What are you going to do? You throw that door open, leap out of that car, and say, what is wrong with you? Right? You know you'd do that. I would. I hope not, but I might. Maybe if I listen to this sermon over and over again, I won't. But but that's our natural response, isn't it? Because, see, it's very natural for us to want justice. And to be honest, it's natural for us to want revenge. And so even though it was an accident, that's why they call them accidents, you know, because they weren't on purposes. And yet when they happen our first response is anger and we want retribution. We want payback and, and we're never satisfied. You know, I, I love how, how, like in lawsuits, for example, it's not enough to say you cost me money and I'm gonna make you recover that money or, or give me back the money that you cost me, but then I'm gonna sue you for damages. In other words, I'm not satisfied to make you pay the penalty for your offense. I want more, you know? If you ask people who have witnessed the execution of someone on death row and they thought that would give them peace you know and i can't say i've asked these people but i've read these things and those people have been asked these questions and they'll tell you that for the most part it doesn't give them any satisfaction to see this person punished in that way it doesn't change anything And this is how it is. Jesus wants you to understand that, you know, when you demand something from another person as a way of of righting a wrong, you'll be better off if you just ask for justice. And so it's very important for us as Christians to understand there's nothing wrong with expecting justice. This is all over the Bible. I mean, people cry out to God for justice, but Remember, when you cry out to God for justice, that God looks at your life as well as the others. So you have to be careful, because if you ask God to give you justice, there may be somebody who has a grievance against you who's asking God for justice, too. And so we have to be careful when we ask God for justice, because we may receive what we deserve, too. And i got to be honest with you, I don't want to receive what I deserve. (laughs) That's why I've got a Savior, and so what jesus is trying to tell us is that it's okay to want justice and it's okay to seek justice but what he wants us to do is to be just for one thing to respond to each other with fairness to not expect more in response to an offense than is reasonable but more than that he expects us to leave the justice to god And he doesn't say that for any other reason than it's better for us. And I'll show you what I mean here. Because if you look at the way the Bible is written, it's really helpful that we have chapters and verses and so forth and paragraphs. But those are all products of the printing craft. In other words, the people who started printing Bibles pretty readily started using the same techniques that other printing uh, requires. So in other words, it's not not by accident that your Bible is laid out a lot like your newspaper. That's because some of the first people to do printing of the Bible were people who had been printing newspapers for years. So when they printed the Bible and organized it into chapters and verses and everything, it was really good because it made it easy for me to tell you exactly where to turn in your Bible so that you're reading the same thing I'm reading. But one of the trade-offs with this structuring of scripture, is that sometimes it breaks up the flow of thought. Sometimes it ruins the, the, the way that we would want to hear the speaker. And this is a good example, because what Jesus says in this case is, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say don't resist evil. I mean, just, just imagine it flowing straight through like that. Just don't even resist evil, he says. Now, The problem with that is, it feels like we should. It feels like we should resist evil. It feels like we should take evil on, but jesus explains what he means by that and again think about the art of the speaker and hyperbole he's got your attention now because you've just said not only do you need to let go of this desire to receive justice eye for eye tooth for tooth but the fact is is you just need to not even resist and everybody's looking at him with their jaws hanging wide open are you kidding me jesus what is the purpose of being a sanctified, holy, set-apart people? If not to make the world better, then why would we, we, would, why would we not resist evil? And Jesus says, here's the thing. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, he says. Now, what Jesus is talking about in this case is something way different than an, administ- an administration of pain. In other words, if you slap somebody on the mouth, it hurts. And that's one thing. But what he's referring to when he says slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek. Well, what he's saying is, is in a world, and and I don't want to get graphic with you, but if you go over to the Middle East to this day and a lot of third world countries, don't ever reach for a person's left hand. They will be deeply offended. And don't ever use your left hand to do anything in a foreign country because people will be deeply offended. It's because they use that one for something else, okay? So, right hands... Even for left-handed people in that part of the world and in that culture, right hand's a thing. So Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. What he's saying is, is if they bring their right hand up and they hit you on the right cheek, how are they doing it? With the back of their hand. So what he's describing is a backhanded slap. and This makes all the difference in the interpretation of this story. Because what he's saying is, is, if someone slaps you with the back of the... How many of you like those those old uh, movies and things you know, like Three Musketeers and the Knights stories and things like that, what do they do when they would challenge someone to a duel? They slap them with the back of their glove, right? A slap with the back of the hand is an insult to your honor. The whole point of a backhanded slap is to insult your honor, to, to say something awful about your character. I think you're a liar, you know, in the old Westerns, right? You don't call anybody a liar because that'll just get the guns drawn and a big gunfight will happen, right? You insult someone's honor, you're going to be out in the street having a duel. That's what this is referring to. And so when Jesus says if somebody slaps your right cheek, which can only be accomplished with the back of the right hand, he's saying when somebody insults your character, when someone calls you a liar, when someone says that you're a bad person in the worst sense of the word, turn the other cheek. And then he goes on later and he says, if someone demands your underwear, give them your coat too. That's really what he says there. People in those days wore basically two layers of clothing. They wore a tunic underneath that was kind of their underclothing, and then they wore an outer garment like a cloak. Now, the outer garment was pretty essential because this thing was used as a blanket. It was used as a prayer shawl. It was used as a pillow. It was used to shelter you from bad weather. You know, everybody's outer garment was pretty essential. And so it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be, you know, if you demanded that from somebody, that'd be like demanding a cowboy's horse. You know, it's just unthinkable. But, but Jesus says, if somebody says, give me your underwear, <laughs> give them your coat too, what does that leave you? leaves you in your birthday suit right the point is if somebody insults your pride if somebody hurts you in a way that offends your dignity Jesus says let it go Now I'm gonna be honest with you this one's a tough one for me of all the things in the Sermon on the Mount nothing has been harder for me than having someone question my character you know, in my line of work, you get insulted sometimes, and it goes with the territory. But one thing that has always deeply hurt me is when people suggest that I have some sort of motive that's evil, you know. And boy, I can really get worked up over that. And then I realized that Jesus has said to me, if somebody slaps you with the back of their hand, let it go. And I could say even as recently as this week, I was finding it difficult not to want to defend my honor. Because everybody wants to be understood, And that's a noble thing, but here's what goes wrong with that, is that we get to a place where we find ourselves on a slippery slope. See, it seems reasonable to want to have your honor defended, but as soon as you go to that place where you're going to try to defend your honor, you're standing right on a precipice where you fall into pride. Now be honest, think about this for a minute. Really think about this. It's one thing to say, I want the truth spoken, not this lie but it doesn't take long before it turns into defending your pride because you're just wounded by the idea that people would think less of you than they should that people would assume things about you that you don't want them to assume and there's where you get on that slippery slope and you ask me how i know because i've lived this one it is so easy to move from a simple desire to be understood and have your character validated to being just proud and what do we know about pride we know that pride is the very essence of sin right sin happened when adam and eve questioned god's goodness when they were convinced to question whether god was being truthful and fair And why would they question that? Because they thought they knew better than God. And if you read the story of Satan and Lucifer and the fall of the third of the angels, it all goes around to this issue of pride. I think I can be God better than God. I think I know a better way for creation than God does. And so this idea that we would have some superiority or superior motives to God's is the essence of sin. And this is why it had to be punished. This is why it had to be corrected. Because it's not that God's pride is at stake. It's because God's right. (laughs) You know, it's just a matter of reality that our creator is right about how things are. And how things ought to be. The way the world really works. And when we deny and defy God, then we basically are saying that we think God's right about this, but not about that. And so that diminishes the very nature of god to someone that is less than perfect less than ideal which is no doubt why jesus ends this little discourse by saying so be perfect as god is perfect now how would he say that to you why would jesus say you need to be perfect as if that's even possible what he's really saying is is that you and i need to accept that god is perfect And doing as God says is the perfect way to live your life. Obviously, as this sinful body of mine and this sinful mind of mine is occasionally tempted away from righteousness, I'm not going to uphold that every day. But if that's the goal, And this is just like Jesus, isn't it? To set this lofty goal in front of you that you can't, you know, what if Jesus had said, if you could just be three quarters perfect, I'd be satisfied. Well, then he wouldn't have needed to die on the cross, would he? Then he wouldn't have needed to do what he did for our sake. And so instead he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, as God is perfect. And therefore, do as I do. Except that Jesus is not asking you to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done. And by the way, because I've got to wrap this up. I'm so off text right now that if you're following along, you're just out of luck. <laughs> but, but here's, I guess, the last thing I want you to get today. If, if Jesus hasn't said anything else to you, what I hope you hear plainly is that he doesn't say, turn the other cheek, don't demand justice, swallow your pride. He doesn't say any of that with a so that. I mean, there's so many places in the Bible where there's a so that, and we're supposed to recognize that there's a formula. You do this so that, that will happen. Do that so that, this will happen. But in this case, there's no so that. In this case, Jesus says, just do it he doesn't say so that your enemies will eventually feel guilty because you didn't give them what they wanted you know he doesn't say so that your enemies will Will, will be shamed before all of the other people around them. You know, there's a very good chance that if you turn the other cheek, if you don't seek some sort of justice that you think is appropriate for the pain that you're feeling, if you don't, if you don't demand that your pride be protected from injury, you know, uh, if you do as Jesus says, it's just because Jesus said so. parents. Were you like me when you were in 8th grade or whatever and you swore you'd never say just because I said so to your kids? And then one day you heard yourself say it and you gasped. (gasps) I just said because I said so to my kids. Sometimes, even Jesus just tells you because I said so. And the reason is, is because... You don't have to understand how it works for the master the creator to know that it works and the reality is is that when i have given in to the temptation to defend my honor when i've given in to the temptation to seek justice that was beyond reasonable it never makes me feel better and it usually just makes things worse and when I don't give into that temptation, it doesn't really make that person change their mind either way. It doesn't really make them stop believing whatever it is they want to believe about me. But it makes me a whole lot better. And so I can't really change the way people think about me. I can only change how I feel about them and life in general. And I believe that's what Jesus wants us to understand. Don't try to change other people because you can't. But you can change you. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can be a new creation. And I believe that's the whole point Jesus is trying to make here. There will be times when we have to defend the helpless. There will be times when we have to seek justice for the oppressed. There will be times when we have to resist evil because it's tempting us to do evil. But ultimately, the best thing for us to do is submit to Jesus in this case because he said so. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Please burn it on our hearts so that it might change our nature today. Let us not leave without being transformed forever. We pray in Christ's name, amen.